As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Lots listeners, it's Joe Weisenthal. Now, before we get to today's show, I wanted to tell you about another one of our great podcasts here at Bloomberg, Bloomberg Surveillance. So every day of the week, Tom Keen, Jonathan Farrow, and Paul Sweeney deliver insight on market news of the day with leaders in global finance, politics, and economics. In a recent episode, they spoke with a brand strategy expert on WeWork's Wild Ride, a global leader in foreign affairs on Trump's Middle East policy, and a top fixed income strategist on Europe's low interest rates. If you feel like you need a daily podcast in your life, definitely check out Bloomberg Surveillance. It'll be right up your alley. And you can find every new episode of Bloomberg Surveillance weekday mornings. Subscribe to them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, did you get retweeted by Ann Coulter today? That <laughs> 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 you weren't expecting that. What made you that. bring that up? Why, why, why would you start an episode with that fact? But yes, I did. I, I was trying to yeah. think of an intro. Um, so I'm just going to say as... Uh, Let's just say, in an effort to... Wait, how did you even notice that? Wait, wait, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait a second. Wait. <laughs> how did you even notice that? I'm not going to tell you. Someone sent it to me. Okay. So, in an effort to even out uh, the political scales of your Twitter feed at the moment, uh, today we're going to be talking about something that actually relates to Elizabeth Warren's campaign platform. Okay. Go on. <laughs> Okay, I'm intrigued. No, no, I'm I'm excited. Also intrigued at the at this uh, elaborate uh, intro that you're you're concocting here. But go on. I'm trying to thread a bunch of different stuff together. Okay, but I think it's fair to say that in the upcoming 2020 presidential election, there is this undercurrent of anger at the existing system of capitalism. People are upset about inequality. They think that lots of money just accrues to the 1%. And so there are all these political proposals on the table, including Elizabeth Warren's Accountable Capitalism Act to try to fix this problem. And the interesting 
interesting thing that's happened recently is that we've even seen some company executives, including Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, also make some noises about this. Right. I mean, I, there's a lot of things going on. So absolutely the sort of lingering anger from the financial sector that we've seen over the last 10 years, it really does not seem like it's faded very much. If anything, maybe it's spread to other sectors like tech, but there still is no one has really gotten over the crisis from a uh, political perspective. And you do see, as you point out, uh, more and more CEOs so in some sense, trying to pay lip service to this, saying things like, oh, we're going to do more than just focus on shareholder returns. Usually it just seems like that rhetoric. But, you know, obviously it's they sort of see which way the uh, the winds are blowing. Right. So we can never be that sure about, about how serious these right. CEOs and executives are about changing this shareholder first paradigm. But they're definitely making noises about it. And in fact, Jamie Dimon and all these other companies wrote this big statement talking about the yeah. idea of sort of embracing a new idea of value, one that wasn't focused on short-term earnings targets and, you know, shareholder returns, but one that presumably also cares about employees and society and the overall national economy and things like well, that. So yeah. that is... Well, no, I mean, I think you're totally right. And one thing that I do believe is genuine, whether they're going to change their long or short term mm -hmm. focus or focus on uh, constituencies beyond the short term, is that I think people are really waking up to the degree to which culture matters inside a corporation and to which uh, a, cult a corporation's culture can be inc have its own inertia and be extraordinarily hard to change. I think Wells Fargo and the scandals that they've suffered in recent years is a really good example of that where mm. there's just all these scandals that are essentially about, you know, sort of at its root, so, uh, basically about short-term operations and hitting these arbitrary targets being extraordinarily difficult to tamp down and to just get a handle on uh, how, how, how far they've spread internally. Right. So I'm glad you said culture. That is the uh, the name of the game today. We're going to be talking to an anthropologist who actually did a field study of culture in the financial industry on Wall Street and did an entire book talking about how that culture or discussing how that culture actually feeds into the way we think about corporations now and their purpose. So why is it that lots of people seem to think that a company's main uh, you know, reason for being raison d'etre is to maximize shareholder value? Where did that idea come from? And what is the link to Wall Street culture? I can't wait. Okay, great. So I'm really excited to say our guest for this episode is Karen Ho. She is the author of Liquidated and Ethnography of Wall Street, and she is now Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Minnesota. Karen, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you all for having me. So uh, I have to say, I read your book uh, quite a few years ago, uh, shortly after it came out, which I, I think was after the financial crisis. But maybe just to begin with, you could sort of set up... Uh, the time period that you were working in and what exactly your field research entailed? Because I, I think that's kind of central uh, to the discussion that we're about to have. 
That's right. Sure. So I'm a social cultural anthropologist and uh, from the late 1990s and into the millennium, I actually did an ethnographic field study of Wall Street investment bankers and banks. In order to do so, I actually took a leave of absence from graduate school um, and entered uh, the Princeton University recruitment process. Now, because I'm an anthropologist and in anthropology, one of the key tenets, especially given our rise as a discipline um, in the sort of uh, British uh, colonial period, um, one of the sort of tenets of our discipline is actually to um, let our informants, uh, our friends, are the people in which we're engaging in, understand what our uh, larger, um, you know, project is, or projects are. So I took a leave of absence from graduate school and actually got a job at Bankers Trust, which is now Deutsche Bank. And, um, and you know, for a year, I actually worked on Wall Street but during that year, I was not doing fieldwork. I call it pre-fieldwork language study. Um, but it's through that experience that I helped to, well, I started to learn the language of finance. And from then, I actually amassed a web of contacts um, that I then actually um, engaged in conversations, interviews, uh, what anthropologists call deep hanging out. Um, in order to understand uh, the sort of culture and practices and mores of Wall Street. And certainly, I did fieldwork during the time of the longest bull market and um, continued to do fieldwork until around 2002. Then I actually got a position at the University of Minnesota where I uh, continued to engage with Wall Street and write up the ethnography. So does an anthropologist go into a scenario like this with a specific question in mind, I mean, just as someone who is not steeped or that familiar with academic anthropology, what is the sort of when you start? Is it just to hear things? Is it just to talk? Or did you f start by having a few specific goals in mind of things you wanted to learn or specific patterns you wanted to see if existed within the uh, Wall Street realm? I did. Um, and often anthropologists go into uh, a particular field site with a burning question in mind. And my burning question actually stemmed from a uh, social economic observation. So in 1995, AT&T, which is uh, based in New Jersey, actually announced one of the largest corporate restructurings and downsizings um, in corporate history. And, um, you know, close to 100,000 um, employees were let go, right sized, downsized, what have you. And in the New York Times business pages, the next day, you know, there are certainly articles about um, the social and economic dislocation of employees and communities, etc. But the sort of large, the larger journalistic context was that Wall Street, uh, so AT&T stock went up to a 52 week high. Um, in the wake of that uh, announcement. And the sort of larger coverage around uh, Wall Street investment banks was that Wall Street cheered at this news. And immediately my anthropological ear um, or sort of, you know, uh, anthropological spidey sense, if you will, began to sort of uh, tingle, right? The idea of, well, here's this sort of massive social dislocation. And at the same time, why did they actually have to use the word cheer? Why were there so much sort of um, 
odd celebration around this news. And part of what an anthropological tenet is, is that you want to get at the native's point of view. So you don't want to presume from the outside, oh gosh, these folks are just masochistic. That's why they're cheering. Um, but rather you want to get at what, why does it make sense for them? Hmm. What is it about the way investment bankers and investment banks are being socialized, incentivized, um, et cetera, et cetera, such that for them, this is interpreted and understood as relatively good news or actually great news? So it was, it was that question and that quandary, right? For me as an anthropology graduate student, I thought of this as um, terrible news. And yet uh, there are people who were just, you know, 50 miles away from me who were cheering. And so I wanted to understand from their perspective, from their social and economic location, from the natives point of view, in this case, the natives being Wall Street investment bankers, um, how they came to this ethos, what motivated and what, how did they sort of um, come to this larger understanding? So I love the contrast between those two different points of view. So someone who studies societies for a living, uh, basically wondering why people think a massive societal dislocation is a good thing. And then people who are focused on money, uh, basically thinking that it's great and cheering it on, as you put it. Uh, nowadays, we kind of take for granted that when a company announces cost cutting uh, programs, which are usually layoffs or salary reductions or things like that, that it's a good thing for the bottom line. But you point out in your work that that wasn't always the case. In fact, that's sort of a, a recent development. How did we get to that point where corporations maximizing shareholder value became the sort of norm? Even the sort of framing of corporations maximizing shareholder value is important to critique because I think what many studies have shown is that corporations maximizing shareholder value as a strategy actually shoots long-term shareholder value in the foot. And I think this is um, many of the sort of critiques coming in the wake of 2008, right? So it's like trying to run a marathon, but telling um, the corporation to do sprints every 400 feet. Right. If you do a sprint every 400 feet, i.e. maximize short term value, you're actually going to never finish the marathon. And so the the strategy of short term stock price spikes um, actually even shoots shareholder value in the foot, even for the sort of biggest adherents. Um, but what I found in my research is that that um, the idea that corporations should simply be or primarily be framed by stock price primacy was really emergent and becoming dominant at that time. And it was highly contested. There were a lot of folks who thought of corporations as long-term social institutions, right? Institutions that, uh, were, uh, that were sort of stewards, community stewards, that were one of their sort of key promises was that of employment, employment. Uh, long-term productivity, right, benefits. So there is actually quite a contested thing when I actually went to do research was a sort of a fight between corporations as a long-term social institution and corporations as a stock price. And uh, I think, unfortunately, corporations as a stock price won out in large part because of Wall Street um, financial advocacy. So that, that, that sort of anticipates where I was going, or what I was going to ask next is, what was going on, and I take it this is sort of why you uh, focused your anthropological work from the perspective of the uh, banks, but 
why don't you start to tell us what was going on inside the banks and their own internal uh, requirements and their own internal expectations and their own internal culture and goals that then bled through to this uh, this new expectation on, uh, on, I guess, non-bank corporations. So what was going on inside Wall Street investment banks was what I call uh, in my research a so-called culture of smartness. And investment banks in Wall Street at the time had really germinated this strategy in the 1980s and 1990s of only recruiting um, front office employees from the most elite universities in the U.S., um, uh, the sort of two greatest feeder schools uh, were Harvard University and Princeton University. And so part of the work that that did was what I call this halo effect, right? So Wall Street, by recruiting from universities that were already branded by the larger society as the best and the brightest, got conferred onto them that, yes, Wall Street, you could trust Wall Street with financial advice and you could trust Wall Street models uh, as a model for how you should run your business because they are populated by the smartest in the world. Now, there are a few things that actually happen after this. That smartness gets oddly catalyzed by what I call a culture of overwork. <laughs> so you have these Wall Street investment bankers that are in many ways working their butts off, right, 100 plus hour weeks. This sort of um, overwork for those who actually continue on often gets read by them as evidence of their superiority in many ways as, um, you know, better than or the best of or better than the average worker, right? And it's often sort of framed in stark contradistinction to those sort of regular workers who only work nine to five. Now, also, in addition to this, you have the larger Wall Street institutional culture where there's a continual revolving door, right? Another piece of Wall Street's self-identity and representation is that they are real time with mm. the market, right? So when people think of the market, they think of Wall Street, right? So there's this sort of market simultaneity. What's going on in Wall Street should be, we should actually emulate what we think is going on with the stock market. Now, historically, the stock market was actually separate from the domain of most corporations. The whole point of having a large organization was that you could ameliorate, you could um, attenuate some of the madness going on with the short-termism in the stock market. The two were not conflated. Now, what happened during the 1980s and 90s was that the culture and the time and the models of what were going on in the financial markets came to sub in for and become a model for what should actually happen within organizations. And this was where Wall Street was taking the lead, right? So their understanding of being real time with the market made it so that they continually had to close desks, open new desks, close departments, just so that they could showcase, right, that they were sort of real time with the market. In the crisis, they often called this um, IBG, YBG, I'll be gone, you'll be gone. Right? So I'm not here to actually um, fix the mistakes that I helped to rot, right? The unsustainability, because I'm not going to be here. And then the final piece to this is that Wall Street investment bankers are paid and compensated by the number of deals they're able to push through, right? So their bonuses are actually based on the number of transactions, not the wonderfulness of the advice, 
right? Or nor their sustainability, nor their ability to actually create long-term productivity. And so sort of think about this sort of crazy cocktail. You have people who think of themselves as the smartest in the world, who think of themselves as superior workers, who are themselves not going to be at their job for a very long time. There's a continual expiration date revolving door to their jobs. IBG, YBG, they're compensated by the number of deals they can push through, not their efficacy or their long-termism. And surely this is recipe for crisis, right? Unsustainable deals um, that push the market up um, that then also then set the stage for the, for the crash. Right. So this is also where the, the liquidated in the title of the book comes from, this idea that e- even though you're supposed to be one of the smartest people in the world and you're working 100-hour weeks uh, and the company is supposed to be valuing your work, and by company I mean the, the Wall Street firm that you're working at, yet you're really, really disposable. Yes, yes, absolutely. And what cushions your disposability is the fact that you're so highly compensated, right, is your bonus. And so oftentimes the sort of... um the irony of this is that the 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 the, temp, the short-term temporalness, the disposability of of high-level Wall Street uh, financiers and employees, that experience of being downsized and yet landing on their feet or having the cushion to land on their feet often makes them less sympathetic to the plight of the average worker for whom being downsized often leads to massive social economic precarity and downward mobility. And so their experience of precarity gets often read back to them as creating men of metal, right? People who can withstand precarity when in fact their structural position is quite different. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Karen, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that year you spent at Bankers Trust. What did you do? What was your job that year? And I'm curious what your mental mental state isn't exactly the word I'm looking for, but sort of going in as an academic and sort of knowing that these ideas, this pre-field work, as you're talking about it, was percolating what was it like to do a job day to day, but also know that it was laying the groundwork for a sort of longer academic study? In Bankers Trust, um, I was an analyst, and the position I had was an analyst as part of an internal management consulting group. And part of the role of an internal management consulting analyst was to actually rotate around the bank, or within the bank, I should say, 
and understand different departments. And anthropologically speaking, it was actually a great uh, position because I could learn um, the sort of mores and the understandings and sort of how the larger bank worked in relation to uh, Wall Street, uh, larger financial services, etc. Now, in terms of the kinds of um, bifurcations that I would constantly have to navigate because I wanted to sort of leave Wall Street uh, after, you know, a year or so and actually come back and apply for grants and do field work was actually very, very stressful. And um, I struggled quite a bit with it. Now, um, my sort of coworkers and um, uh, people who I reported to all knew that I was an anthropology graduate student, uh, that I would want to come back and actually study Wall Street uh, uh, culture, et cetera, et cetera. So I felt fine about that because the what I did not want to do is to be framed as somebody who was doing covert research, right? I was not doing covert research. I was working. I was an employee for a year. Um, people knew my sort of larger goals and hopes, and uh, I would come back in the future. And yet, how to actually operationalize that created quite a bit of anxiety. However, Wall Street, in ironically to the rescue, our entire department, our entire uh, management consulting group within Bankers Trust actually got downsized. <laughs> and it was actually the very first time that I recognized the people with my coworkers, again, sort of this is the, you know, coming back to the conversation we were having, that my coworkers were actually dealing with constant insecurity themselves. And previously, before this experience, I had imagined Wall Street financiers as in some sort of um, oblique sense downsizers, Right. And rank and file employees in corporate America as those people being downsized. And what I came to see was, oh, my gosh, Wall Street was actually using its models on itself. Right. Wall Street financiers were, again, this idea of real time were constantly being subject to their own dominant models. Right. So they're sort of drinking the the collective Kool-Aid of uh, maximizing shareholder value as well. Um, <laughs> right. I, I have one more fieldwork question, and then I want to sort of uh, fast forward into today's discussion about capitalism and, and the roles of companies. But did, as an anthropologist, did you ever regret not uh, not doing fieldwork on, I, I guess, a more traditional subject? Like most people think of anthropologists going off into the jungle or to Papua New Guinea or something to live with remote tribes. And, and you were on Wall Street drawing, you know, field maps of downtown Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> didn't you ever regret um, not going elsewhere? And, and, and what did your colleagues say about your, your choice of field work? Yes. No, admittedly, in the late 1990s, choosing to study Wall Street financiers was incredibly odd. And um, certainly there was pushback. But, you know, I hope I made the case, which is that part of the... Um, the critical eye of anthropology that often gets honed through long-term immersion and engagement um, in the ideas and values and practices of um, people's communities, um, ideologies we want to understand and apprehend. That kind of engagement was often missing from larger social scientific studies of the powerful. And part of what I wanted to do was to use the tools of anthropology and getting at 
the ethos and the ethics and the values and how they come to be structurally uh, reproduced and instantiated by individuals in a larger cultural web. I wanted to use the tools of anthropology to see and to understand how this is happening for the powerful. Oftentimes, the powerful have a, a cloak of invisibility, right? Uh, what sort of uh, social scientists call the black box. And part of what that uh, cloak of invisibility does is that it shields them from critique, from rendering specific the historical contingency and the cultural specificity of their practices, and from engaging with the values that then make up this big behemoth called finance. And one of the sort of points is in order to actually engage and unpack and critique and maybe reform and maybe restructure and maybe undo some of the kinds of um, sort of bad cultural practices or the practices that lead to larger socioeconomic inequalities, we actually have to understand how they get made in the first place. And so it was training the sort of eyes of anthropology to the corridors of power. I want to ask a question that's sort of specific to what got you interested in this topic in the first place, and you mentioned the AT&T layoffs and how they were cheered on Wall Street. And something that you notice, uh, whether you hear about a country in distress or a company in distress, is you often hear what uh, the cult of what I would call like the tough choices, like uh, this government is going to have to make some tough choices about where they're going to cut social spending, or this company is going to have to make tough choices about layoffs, things like that. And I often wonder if when you hear an example of Wall Street, quote unquote, cheering at layoffs, and of course, you still hear that over uh, 20 years later, how much is it about the actual presumed increased profit that the company will demonstrate by having fewer employees on its payrolls and theoretically it becomes a leaner, more efficient operation versus the signaling that a CEO sends that they're willing to make a tough choice? And the message that that sends to the people who themselves are dealing with the grueling lifestyle of Wall Street so that it's less so about the uh, increase to the bottom line, per se, but the signal that it sends to the bankers that, yes, we are willing to make the, uh, the tough choice. We are willing to do something painful that nobody likes to do as a demonstration of our sort of willingness to be good stewards of capital. I guess what I would say to that is oftentimes CEOs um, who are often advised by uh, Wall Street financiers often get a, um, a sort of false choice in their head. Right. The idea that we need to do this in order to um, save jobs in the end. And that hasn't actually panned out. What often happens is the kind of restructuring, um, whether it's mergers and acquisitions or financial restructuring or taking on debt or downsizing or merging or acquiring, what that often does is actually sort of create these transactions that downsizes pieces of the institution and takes those so-called savings and reinvest it up top, right? So the sort of restructuring that often happens is recaptured and um, sort of used to sort of fuel um, investor wealth. And I actually would frame that as much more of an extractive model that's not so much about getting the corporation in shape and actually fixing the longstanding problems, but rather doing a relatively quick extraction for short-term shareholder um, or investor gain. And oftentimes, folks 
uh, get sort of socialized, I would say, is understanding, well, it doesn't matter because as long as shareholder gains, the owners gain. And so there's another sort of false choice here, and that is the assumption that historically and even into the present that shareholders actually own the company. I would actually say that shareholders own shares of the company, but they don't necessarily own the entirety of the corporation itself. And that's sort of um, being sort of highly contested, and um, that debate's really sort of coming up in the yeah. in the public uh, realm uh, discourse today. Uh, I have a sort of related question, but how much responsibility do the companies bear here? Because it feels like even if Wall Street culture might be a, a little... Um, distorted un under your observations, the role is actually quite clear. Like Wall Street is selling a package of services to corporate clients, whether it's M&A advisory or fundraising and things like that. And the companies that hire them don't necessarily have to accept those services. And yet often they seem to. That's right. That's right. Um, what I would also say is that in the throughout the 1990s, what happened was that Wall Street really worked quite closely with um, top-level corporate management to really restructure the ways in which high-level executives and managers in most of the largest corporations actually got compensated. And so the sort of shift to finance, the shift to the financial markets for most um, sort of large uh, corporations really happened in the 1980s and 1990s, where corporate executives actually came to be paid through their stock options, right? And in so doing, instead of actually relying on a salary mm. that's uh, in a sense, in a context with the larger organizational culture in which they were embedded, they were reoriented to Wall Street timeframes and understandings by actually being paid through stock and not through organizational salaries. So what happened over that 1990s timeframe was that many executives actually came to see their roles as similar to that of, of Wall Street. And also, not surprisingly, many corporate executives were actually hired from finance, right? So this sort of idea of sort of growing up within the organization, that right. pretty much ended um, in the 1980s and 1990s, where many executives were then hired in vis-a-vis -vis finance or through finance uh, programs uh, after their MBAs. I'm curious, you know, obviously it's no, it's no secret or mystery that within the halls of academia, there are a lot of people of a sort of uh, the more left persuasion who are going to be very critical of Wall Street and uh, big business. I'm curious, though, from your perspective, whether you think that uh, other colleagues in your field, whether they have any blind spots that uh, because they haven't actually gone in and done the work and actually been involved in working in a bank that causes them to misunderstand aspects of how this all works. Academia certainly shares a large part of the critique. And uh, one of the sort of key points um, is that, you know, certainly there are many economists who really help to promote this idea that shareholders right. are the sort of owners or co of companies, that the purpose of business is to create a profit, right? Sort of agency theory that the whole role of managers is actually to um, fulfill the their role as agents to the principal, which are the shareholders. These are all constructed academic paradigms that 
or actually disconnected a little bit from uh, corporate history, mm. yeah. right? That then got promoted as the truth, that then got also taken up uh, by Wall Street, right? So in many ways, academia actually helped to hatch this idea that financiers then ran with, right? The Milton Friedmans right. uh, of the world. And the Michael Jensen's of the world, even though he later uh, critiqued some of his viewpoints. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to my convoluted uh, political intro, we are seeing more and more politicians make noise about reforming the reasons that companies exist. So Elizabeth Warren is talking about redistributing shareholder value towards the middle class. Jamie Dimon is talking about making companies less short-term focused and, you know, maybe reorient them towards something that isn't just quarterly earnings. What do you think of those types of movements, those proposals, and how would one actually go about changing the culture that gave rise to this existing system? You know, many of these kinds of large-scale reforms um, would be important to actually think through and take on. And one sort of example is, um, I believe Elizabeth Warren, but many other folks are talking about what's happening with the private equity industry. And oftentimes the private equity industry will say, hey, look, we're sort of different than the people who do short-term shareholder value because instead of actually doing the evil eye and quarter by quarter uh, short-term returns on a public company, what we're doing is we're actually taking companies private. But I would argue that many of the same kinds of um, ideologies and values of extraction, right, and uh, paying oneself a dividend and loading right. on debt onto companies in order to extract those dividends um, it's a similar ideology that private equity firms have done, and yet, by and large, they're not regulated. And so one sort of iconic example is Toys R Us. Toys R Us, oftentimes people will say, well, what's the reason Toys R Us went bankrupt? People will say, well, because of Amazon. And yet what folks are often missing is that Toys R Us wasn't doing wonderfully, but it actually wasn't doing that badly, right? Because private equity funds often want to take over companies or buy companies that actually have a really good cash flow. Right. So this idea that these companies will have been bankrupt anyway or they're terribly distressed, again, is a false choice, is a sort of uh, problematic representation um, that Toys R Us was doing okay, not wonderfully, and yet what sort of the takeover um, or the buying up of turning Toys R Us into a portfolio company of Bain Capital, KKR, and um, Vornado Realty Trust, what that did was it engendered um, its, ba its bankruptcy by loading on billions of dollars of debt um, so that they actually could not have the bandwidth, right, or um, the capital to invest in the kinds of online presence that they actually needed to do. I'm curious, uh, you know, I, I imagine that someone in your position today who is thinking about uh, doing uh, a sort of similar ethnography might be tempted to go into uh, big tech these days and get a job at Facebook or Google because we know that there's so much scrutiny of these companies and arguably some of the anger that was directed towards Wall Street has been uh, redirected of late towards them. What would you advise and what would be the kind of questions that if you were, say, doing the same thing or you had a student who wanted to do something similar but at a big tech company, what would be the kind of uh, questions you might uh, encourage them to 
look out for to start uh, focusing their work? Wow. So tech companies, huh? <laughs> well, you know, the, if I can sort of uh, take one piece of that question. Sure. And um, that is that I, I think it would be really difficult to do the kind of field work that I did back then, um, actually today. Yeah. And when I was doing the field work back then, it was before 2008. Right. And I should also say it was before the ubiquity of a smartphone. And so, and the idea of a smartphone is that one's work email, one's Gmail, one's phone numbers are all sort of conflated together. And so the kind of sort of immersive fieldwork that I did for three plus years with digital recordings and tape recordings that would never have gone viral, right? Of course, I'm under an anthropological um, uh, pledge that these are all confidential and then the data is destroyed, et cetera. Um, But certainly given the scrutiny of um, finance and, you know, tech today, post-2008, uh, I'm not sure I would have actually gotten the kind of um, approval to, to do the, the same kind of field work. Um, and even though many of the sort of um, executives, et cetera, are still, you know, quite powerful, if not as powerful, or if not more powerful than they were, they also feel uh, much more scrutinized. And that's a that's a tough cocktail, right? Yeah. To, be poor, to, to think of oneself as uh, under scrutiny and perhaps a victim, but also be very powerful. That, that's, a <laughs> right. that's not a good combination to have. <laughs> well, Karen, I, I found that conversation really, really fascinating. Uh, just the idea of an anthropologist going to Wall Street and conducting their field work uh, is absolutely amazing. And the book is great. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you, Karen. That was great. I loved it. So, Joe, I found that conversation uh, really fascinating. And part of what's great about Karen's work is just the dedication of going and actually working this really intense, you know, work schedule in order to do long term field research uh, on, on Wall Street. I think that's really great. I thought that was really fascinating, too. And you know, it's funny. So like our last several episodes, we've been doing a lot about things relating to uh balance sheets and the sort of demands of uh, balance sheet and accounting requirements um, and how they affect the economy. And this kind of seemed like a break, but I actually think it's pretty connected because ultimately what uh, ultimately these sort of uh, the constraints imposed on companies by Wall Street, by the people who can go out and fundraise is going to have a very real uh, effect on how corporations behave and whether uh, financial conditions are loose, whether they're available, to whom they're available, who gets to decide who they're available to, what are the conditions of those people. I do think it's actually uh, very much connected in a sort of more theoretical sense or a sort of more personal sense to a lot of the themes Mm -hmm. we've actually already uh, been discussing lately. So I really enjoyed that. Oh, I totally agree, except I would sort of flip it and say that you know, in the past 10 years or so, we've had extremely loose financial conditions by virtue of very, very low interest rates. And in that environment, the only constraint on corporate behavior is basically cultural, right? Mm. It's like 
the extent to which you are willing to undertake a number of transactions, whether it's debt financing or M&A activity or buybacks, the constraint there is cultural. And so I think the conversation we just had about this idea that doing something has sort of become embedded in the Wall Street yeah. ethos, I think it's really important. No, I, uh, I, I, I totally agree with you. The other thing, and I, I didn't get to uh, mention it, but... Uh, Karen uh, alluded to it several times. It's interesting to think about an era of corporations that actually existed before the view that the corporation's goal was to just get the stock price up. And if you read a book like uh, uh, John Galbraith's New Industrial State, he talks about all this stuff about corporations viewing itself Mm. not as a profit maximization entity per se, but more from the perspective of insurance and having the ability to create an entity that would weather different economic cycles and different idiosyncratic risks and so forth. It's really hard, I think, in 2019 to imagine that corporations ever had a different purpose besides just um, uh, besides just getting the stock price up. But it actually is, as uh, I think I really appreciate hearing her talk about how it's kind of a modern idea. Oh, yeah. So in Karen's work, it's quite clear that this is something that only really started to happen in in the 1980s. So quite a recent shift. Um, And it's it's weird, again, to think about how embedded it is in our modern notions of finance and the economy. This is how the financial system is supposed to work. Of course, capitalism is about making money and therefore companies are trying to maximize their profits for shareholders. But just two or three decades ago, or I should say... I always forget what what era it is. Uh, Just three or four decades ago, that wasn't necessarily the case. Totally. All right. Uh, Well, this has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. And check out all of Bloomberg's podcasts on Twitter, at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.